congregation that we're a part of. This morning, we're going to take three weeks. Well, this morning is the start of three weeks. Uh, we're going to take three weeks to break from the book of John, actually. And we are going uh, to work through a verse that stood out to me for most of my life as a follower of Jesus. I don't know what this last year has been like for you. I feel like I've said that many a sermons. Uh, it's like the main title. I don't know what things have been like for you exactly uh, because none of us can know. All of our experience this year has been different, but every one of us have experienced some degree of loss, some degree of hardship, most likely some degree of exhaustion, frustration, maybe rage. There's been a lot. And I know for, for all of us, and even as a church, we said our hope was not just to survive this last year, but was to thrive during it. And while there has been some thriving, praise God for what he's done, praise God for our church family, so grateful. There's also been another word um, that has character, at least I won't put this on you, I'll put it on me, that's characterized some of my time during this last year and a half. And that word, uh, I wish it were a better one, but it, it's the word floundering. Uh, just kind of, I'm not still, I'm not dead for sure. But I'm, I'm almost turning in, in circles, or I'm trying to get footing, or I'm trying to figure out how and where and why to go the places I ought to go. This year, perhaps more than any before, is opportunity for distraction. There are so many things to be up in arms about. There are so many things to be angry about. There's so many things to be frustrated about. There's so many things that are going after our attention, our affections, our passions, and sometimes it's really, really important, not sometimes, almost always, it's really, really important for us to come across some of these key passages in Scripture that just... boil things down a bit for us. You see, during this last year, I... I was doing plenty of things, but sometimes the question of whether or not I was doing the right thing was challenging. And I don't know what questions you've been asking, but our series title for these next three weeks is a good question for us. So if you're a note taker, here's, here's, a, here's the question to be asking. It's this, if Jesus is king, if he is Lord, if he's the one we desire to follow, the question for us is, what does the Lord require of me? In this series, we're going to be reminded of what the Lord asks for all followers of Jesus. And that hopefully as a church, continue to take step in growing as resilient disciples of Jesus. Our series is called, What the Lord Requires. There's a few passages throughout Scripture that really have a tendency to sum up how we're called to live as followers of Jesus. I'm sure there's a number of these in which you're familiar with. Matthew 22, 37 through 40 probably comes to mind for some of you. It's the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That is another core verse that if we ever find ourselves floundering, it's a good one to come back to. 
Another one is at the end of Sermon on the Mount, I would throw all of the Sermon on the Mount if we're in a time of floundering, spend time there. It's a great space to be. But at the end of it, I'll never forget, this is one that Paul read, my Paul read over us, my wife and I, Keely and I, as we were getting married in 724. It's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, blessed is the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. It's the picture of this. It's kind of like we've been learning in John that we learn from Jesus' mother Mary, listen to the words of Jesus and do whatever he says. When we're floundering, Great place to go back to. Go back. What does Jesus say? What is he calling me to do? Galatians 6.2 is another one of those. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's like, that's a big statement of what it, when we're looking at what are we supposed to do with our lives. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That is a big statement. It's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Or if you are, were a... Uh, a Jew growing up in the Old Testament, First Testament times, in the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. All of these passages are, are meant to be rubrics. They're meant to be almost like um, magnetic pieces for us in Scripture to be pulled back to and be reminded. The Shema was to be recited every single day in Jewish households. It would still be a good practice for us to have as well. These are all significant passages. And so is the verse we're looking at for the next three weeks, which is Micah 6.8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Father, as we get into your word this morning as we talk through, as we introduce this series, we invite you, God, no, no matter where season we've come out of, what season we're currently in, Lord, you're inviting us into a submissive posture unto you, our great king. And we invite you to teach us, Lord. And this morning, we, we give the message to you give ourselves to you, and we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that even right now, you are with us. Please use me this morning for your glory, for the edification of your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this morning, this in this series that we're going to be going through, I, if some of you were coming in hoping that I would just wow you and that you would learn something brand new, if I would dazzle you, uh, you're probably not going to get that. So if you want to leave, I understand. What we're talking about over the next three weeks isn't something necessarily that's filled with wow, even though there actually will be a bunch of wonder, wonder and beauty even this morning. But what we're talking about isn't going to be brand new, and it shouldn't be. 
what we're talking about this morning in the next three weeks actually should be very familiar. As we're coming back to the core, to the essentials of what it is that God requires of his people. If you're anything like me, I tend to overanalyze uh, things. I tend to make things overly complicated uh, when I'm alone and when I'm letting my mind spin. And so it's so great to have something a little bit more cohesive and a little bit more succinct to pull us back together. So before we dive into our actual um, verse for this morning, we're actually, believe it or not, we're only going to take five words this morning out of our passage. Um, but we need to do a little bit of a background understanding of what's going on in Micah, because we're going to be in here for a few weeks. Uh, and if you are familiar with the Bible Project, we invite you to go take a look at the video. It'll, they'll do a great job of giving us more background uh, of what's going on in Micah, but I'll just I'll give us a little bit of a synopsis of what's happening. What's happening in Micah, Micah is a prophet uh, between 750 B.C. and 715 B.C., same time as uh, Isaiah and the same time as Hosea, approximately, give or take a few years. Micah's filled with warning and promise, or judgment and forgiveness. Micah's bringing warning He's warning Israel for not living the way God called them to live, especially the leaders among them. Both in the northern kingdom and in Judah, the southern kingdom, people of Israel are not being faithful to the covenant in which they've made with Yahweh. So in, in essence, what's happening in Micah is Micah's bringing God's lawsuit against his people. And the, this lawsuit, is, it's filled with the sins that are being brought forward, and these sins are See, it's sins of idolatry, sins of seizing of property, failure of civil leadership, failure of religious leadership, failure of prophetic leadership, offering sacrifice without truly repenting, and corrupt business practice and violence. Mike is specifically frustrated and bringing warning to leaders to those in power. During this time, the division between rich and poor was getting wider and wider and wider. Land that was owned by folks of lower esteem was being swooped up by those more wealthy and with greater status. During Micah's time, the wealthy are admired and shown favor, and the poor are taken advantage of as their land was being taken from them, even when the Torah specifically speaks against this in Numbers 36. But this isn't just wealthy or savvy businessmen. Prophets were guilty basically of an early version of indulgences, saying, pay me money and I will give you a blessing. But Micah isn't all doom and gloom either, thankfully. It's filled with hope and promise. As he talks about God as the shepherd to his people in Micah 2 and how he's going to reign as king. In Micah 4, there's a promise of the temple being exalted one day. And, and we know now with Jesus, Jesus talks about this. And we even heard about it in John. Hey, tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Jesus is actually going, is replacing this temple. The book closes in Micah 7, with a, a reminder of God's steadfast love and compassion. In essence, it's how God will be faithful to 
his covenant promise of old. You see, Micah's warning is anchored in our God of love who desires relationship with his people and also for those who are far off, those who haven't yet believed. Which brings us to our verse for the next three weeks, Micah 6, 8. If you haven't memorized it, we invite you to do so. He has told you, O mankind, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love mercy and kindness, and walk humbly with your God. We're going to do something maybe a little bit um, different, and we're going to start backwards in our series. Meaning, we're, we're going to, this morning, we're talking about walk humbly with our God. Why are we doing it this way? You see, the reality is that walking humbly with God is core to any justice that we might talk about, is core to any kindness that we might talk about. Walking humbly with God is our starting point. And in this verse, Micah is reminding those who would listen in the midst of chaos that they are facing, the exile that might, they might come under, the frustrations they might experience, that no matter what their circumstance may be, that this is what the Lord requires of his people. And this isn't just for Israel. This is still what the Lord requires of his people today. And so let's start here, and we're going to start with the last two words. We're starting backwards, backwards. And the last two words are with God. I can't express how important this is and yet how simple this is. See, all of Micah 6, 8 and really all of the Christian life is to be viewed with this being the reality. We are made to be with God. That we are made for relationship with him. And again, we could move past this really quickly. But this is essential. Whether or not you've grown up in the church or whether you're brand new to the faith. The truth that we get to be with God is not the starting point. It's not the middle. It's not the it's all of it. We get to be with God. Why might that be a big deal? And I think sometimes we might in our brains we might shelf that off to the side. But let's I want to hear from you because we're with God, so we get to be with him. Who is this God that we get to be with? And this is where you get to help me. Who is God? Who is God? Creator. What else? Savior. Huh? Father. What else? A good shepherd. What else? Who is God? Redeemer. Sustainer. Faithful. Who is God? What else? Wisdom. Love. Joy. Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. It's eternal. Huh? Life? Light. 
and life. Yes. He's holy. It's big. He's near. Exodus 34, 6 through 7 is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. We've taught on this before. It says, the Lord passed before him. Or can't claim this is where the Lord tells us who he is. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Micah 6, 8 ends with, with God. We get to be with God. Do we care? Is it exciting? Is it terrifying? Is it meh? We get to be God. And this is always how it was intended to be, is it not? Adam and Eve walked with God. We get to be with him. And this is part of God's promise to us. It was his intention in creation. And after the fall, it's his desire to redeem and restore that which was broken through sin and rebellion. Ezekiel 37 reminds us of this. He says, my dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is God's heart and his promise. However, there is a big fat problem. And that's sin and rebellion. We can read the end of Micah 6, 8, and we get to say, we get to be with God. Amen, that's glorious, that's amazing. But how in the world is it possible for us to be with God? How could a holy God dwell among his people? And it can only come through the promised seed that we see in Genesis 3 where it was started. The one Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We've been studying this in John. How Jesus, who is God, took on flesh and dwelt among us. And he came as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And he went to the cross like a lamb to the slaughter and was crucified. His blood was spilt so that you and I who were once enemies with God might be now reconciled to him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Ephesians 2.4 says it so beautifully, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. It's through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that we might be with him. It's through his shed blood that we might now be at peace, shalom with our creator. 
And he ascended on high after his resurrection and seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling, but he did not leave us as orphans. He promised to be with us to the end of the age. How is it that he is with us? He has sent his spirit. And this is now our reality. We are with Christ and have been seated with him. John tells us all throughout the book of John that if we, this book was written that you might believe in that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and might find life in his name. For all who follow Jesus, who all who believe in Jesus, Romans 10 says it like this, those who confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, they will be saved. They're not just saved out of hell, they are saved into Christ, with Christ, union with him. And as followers of Jesus, our goal in life is to be with Jesus, to be changed by Jesus, and to begin to do the things Jesus does. And this passage, all the way back in Micah, embodies that message. But one of the most important pieces for us to realize today is that the reality is that we are with God. I know it's like the most simple point in the world. But it's a truth that most of us really struggle to believe. Have you guys ever been hanging out with someone who ever felt, or with somebody and ever felt like people or the person that you were hanging out with seemed like they were either ignoring you or leaving you out? Anybody? In there? I have doesn't feel great. There was a few year stretch back when I was a teenager, prepubescent teenager. My other friends had already hit it. Thanks. Um, we were all goodish kids. And I often was the third, the fifth, or the seventh wheel, just depended on how things shook out. I was very popular at the time, but maybe not for the right reasons, primarily because I was single. Because Early teens aren't really allowed to date or go on dates, but they are allowed to go see movies in groups. And so, generally speaking, I would often get invited, and these were my friends most of the time, and I would get invited to go to a movie with four other people. Generally, I'd sit right in between the other sets. Walking in, it's like, oh man, we're all together, this is cool. Lights dim, movie starts. Generally, I think they intentionally picked a bad movie so that they might like spend more time next to each other. <laughs> but once I sat down and oftentimes, was, I was still with this group, but all of their attention was on each other. They would turn and start moving their mouths together. or holding each other's hands, or whatever. That's as far as it went, I promise, I think. <laughs> but it was a strange situation. Because I was with them, but I didn't feel like I was with them <laughs> all the time, or at least I felt like I was with them. I don't think they felt like I was with them. <laughs> I was ignored. I was still there, but I was ignored. 
And then lights come back on. We start walking out of the movie again. And guess what? Oh, Kevin Matters again. Hey, how was that movie? Did you like it? You didn't watch any of it. I did. It was interesting because these genuinely were my friends. They, they weren't bad people. They're, I love them. I'm still friends with most of them today. But it's quite interesting, the withness and how the withness changes depending on the circumstance. And look, I am not God, so I'm not saying God feels like I felt. But I think many of us probably treat our withness with God similar to how maybe I felt as a third wheel, fifth wheel, or seventh wheel. I'm going to use the witness, or my friends are going to use the witness, as long as it is a benefit to them. You see, them being with me allowed them to go to the movie. But once we were at the movies, mom and dad weren't there any longer. So the benefit of being with me was nil. Once we got out of the movie, it was there, we were back together again, and that was great. But most of them really failed to recognize and realize that I was right there with them. We get to be with Jesus. And the truth is, the psalmist tells us this, if we ascend to the heavens, he's there, and if we ascend, descend to the depths of Sheol, he's there. The reality is, there's nowhere we can go where he's not with us. He is always with us. How are we with him? Do we treat him like a third, fourth, well, not fourth, third, fifth, or seventh, ninth, eleventh wheel? Do we recognize him only when it's convenient for us? This is why we ask the question, who is God? Because if God is who we just said he is, I think we want to be with him. And I think we want to recognize that we're with him. But if we're to be honest, it's really hard. Let's say, for example, when your child might be throwing a tantrum. And they're losing your mind, and you're losing your mind, I don't know if that's the moment I want to just be like, and Jesus, so glad that you're with me right now. I want to yell at my kid through their teeth to do what I want them to do. But what's interesting, whether or not I like it or not, no matter what I do in that situation, Jesus is with me. Do I treat him like he's there or not? This is one of the most beautiful aspects of being a follower of Jesus, and that's this. We get Jesus. We get Jesus. And he's with you wherever you go. But are we with Jesus to get something from him? Are we with Jesus to do something for him? Or do we delight in the reality that we get to be with him? Have you guys ever had somebody in your life that you were just over the moon excited to spend time with? 
You ever had somebody in your life like that or somebody maybe who you really admire or you really look up to or you're really stoked on and you finally get to spend time with them and the question comes up, hey, what do you want to do? And sometimes we can, you know, get frustrated with people because they're like, people are super indecisive these days. Like, where do you want to go to lunch? I don't know. Where do you want to go? That's not what I'm talking about here. When you get to spend time with somebody that you love, that you admire, that you respect, that you're so excited to be with, when it comes to the question of what do you want to do, the answer is almost like, I don't care. I'm just excited to be with you. And so you defer to what they want. Now, friends, none of this is meant to come down with a judgmental hammer or anything like that. This is all invitation into greater relationship with God. Greater relationship with Jesus. And I think the Lord's inviting us into a deeper relationship in our posture and relationship with Jesus. And if you get nothing else from today, I want you to hear loud and clear if, if you are a follower of Jesus. If you're not, this is not true. If you are a follower of Jesus, he is with you. Permanently. And do you recognize his witness? Are you excited about his witness? Do you want to grow in that? Which moves us to our last two words, which is walk humbly. We are to walk humbly with our God. Okay, so he, here are the last two words that we're going to go through this morning. A walk, what type of word is walk, my English people? What is that? Verb, good. Humbly, what type of word is that? Adverb, good. We've got our grammar down. I had to look it up, not going to lie. Just kidding. <laughs> no, it's, I'm not kidding. I've got to be honest. <laughs> Grammar's not. When I learned Greek, the first thing I realized is, oh, my gosh, my English grammar is so bad. Uh, so when, I want, I, when you... When you think of humility, what people come to mind? I just want to hear from you real quick. What, what type of, not what type, are there specific people that come to mind when you think of somebody who is humble or who has lived a humble life? Who comes to mind? Jesus, good one, easy one. That was a cheater move. <laughs> who else? Mother Teresa, right? Why Mother Teresa? Yeah, absolutely. Anybody else come to mind? It doesn't have to be famous people. It could be somebody in, in your life. Who are there? Or the people that come to mind? Your sister? How come? Okay. Yeah. Anybody else? People come to mind. It's a bit of a hard question to answer, I'll be honest, because humble people don't want recognition, right? Unless you're Moses, most humble man who ever lived. Part of it's challenging, actually, because in our, in our world, we actually don't celebrate humility very much. Most of the people that are really well-known are some sort of star who has self-promoted themselves in some way, shape, or form, which is kind of antithesis to humility, 
Now, this is kind of silly again, but when you think about walk or walking, what sort of things come to mind? Good. So what would not running mean? Okay. Good. Again. Stride length. <laughs> I think of Awana where I had to do the speed walking challenge and I just ran but cheated uh, because I, I followed their rules. Pacing yourself. Taking your time. Huh? Moving location. Again, not fast though, right? You guys, anybody ever walked a really long distance before? I'm, I'm just curious. If you, this is, it's not like a humble brag. I'm just, if you've walked a long distance, like how far have you walked? I'm just curious. I know some of you are backpackers. What, 30 miles? How long did that take? Three days. Or like 30 minutes in a car. Not even, 10 minutes in a car maybe. <laughs> depending on your speed. Yeah. Anybody else? Really long distance? How did it feel when you started? Felt great when you started? How far in were you like, this is going to take a long time? Huh? Mile five. You can't get anywhere fast walking, can you? You will get there. That's right, Missy. Yeah. And how do you walk? No, just in general. How do people walk? One step at a time. Any, any, uh, do we have any, um, what about Bob fans? Baby steps. Baby steps into the elevator. Baby steps. One step at a time. I'm, I'm stretching this out not to waste time, friends, but because the idea of walking humbly, it is not one of these. It is not, got it, bam, done. It's not even an hour-long journey, and it's done. The invitation to walk humbly is to day after day after day. Put one step in front of the other. And Philippians 2 helps give us a picture of what does humility look like. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourself. Remember, we are not doing this fast, we're walking, we're doing it with God, we're not doing it alone. Walking humbly, like we talked about with the person that we just love to spend time with and we're really excited to spend time with them, either because we haven't seen them in forever or because they've got a lifestyle that I'm like, oh my gosh, I just want to be like this, and we defer to them. Walking humbly is that picture, I defer to Jesus as I walk with him, one step at a time. Notice there's nothing in here about where you should live. There's nothing in here about 
the type of vocation you ought to have. There's nothing. This is before all of that. This is at the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that I walk humbly, step by step, with my God. Now, one of the greatest obstacles to humility, of course, is pride. It's selfishness. 2 Chronicles 7.14 reminds us, if we want to grow in humility, these are the invitations for us. This was the invitation to the people of God back then and still the invitation to us. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, how? That they would pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways and I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. This is repentance. Humility necessitates us understanding who God is and who we are. And who God is is faithful, perfect, pure, holy, eternal, steadfast. Most of those things I am not. David gives us a great picture of what it looks like to potentially practice humility or walking in humility in Psalm 51 1 through 12, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inner being, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Worship team, you guys can come on up. If we truly grasp that we are now with God, God of the universe, that he's with us wherever we go. Walking in humility ought to be the natural output of that, right? More or less. If we truly believe with our whole heart, with everything that is inside of us, that God is with us wherever we go, that we are with him, he is with us, humility should be just the status quo of followers of Jesus, yes? You guys agree? More or less? Is it? Sadly, we have an example right at the beginning, right? Of someone who actually walked with God. But did he continue? Walking humbly with God? Or were there moments of maybe at least one significant blip along the way? 
You see, even Adam, who physically walked in the garden, had a slip-up. This is why we must not only believe that God is with us, but we must practice walking in humility with him. We sing a song every now and again, Jesus, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. This is a discipline in walking in humility. I continue to need Jesus. There's not a moment, not an hour where I don't need him. And yet we forget regularly So we must walk humbly with our God. This is going to take practice. It's going to take time. You guys all shared these people who were humble. Mother Teresa, she had a lifetime of demonstration of growing and walking in humility. It takes time. So how can we practice walking in humility with God? Again, none of this is going to be earth-shattering. Ready? Practice being with Jesus daily, number one. Remember, he's with you already. But just because you're with somebody doesn't mean you acknowledge that person, as my story entailed at the movie theater. So practice being with Jesus daily. And acknowledge that he's with you and acknowledge that you're with him. Terry Fouché starts off his mornings, and some people think it's really silly. He starts off like this. He says, Jesus, love me. People are like, what? That's weird. And he says, Jesus, love me, because he knows, like it says in 1 John, we cannot love. We don't love except for the fact that he first loved us. And so as he wakes up in the morning, he recognizes that he is with Jesus and that Jesus is a lover of our souls. And so it's a way in which he intentionally engages in being with Jesus. And then he goes on to recite the Lord's Prayer in Psalm 23. So practice being with Jesus daily. But here's the catch. Many of us, we spend time with Jesus and we try and accomplish something. Our goal is to be a better human or our goal is to do this thing or our goal is to do that thing. Remember, first and foremost, as a follower of Jesus, you have been adopted into a family, and you are made to be with Jesus. If we are going to do things for him, it, become, it is because we are attached to him, as we'll see in John 15. Second, practice repentance. Use Psalm 51 or Psalm 139, 23 through 24. I invite you this week, take two, two blocks of time this week, 15 minutes, do this twice, Practice repentance. Psalm 139, 23 through 24 says, Search me, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Take time to ask the Lord if there are things that need to be confessed and repented from in your life. We're reminded throughout Scripture, especially in James, that if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, he will exalt you. Bob was praying this morning, and he said that the Lord gave him a picture of a child reaching their hand out to their father in need, and how a good father will never take that hand away. In many ways, confession in repentance is that practice over and over again. It's falling on our knees, reaching our hand out to our father, saying, help, 
if you want to walk in humility with our God, it will involve repentance. And then two last really quick ones. Practice, practice speaking less and listening more. If you want to grow in humility, it's generally going to come through you shutting your mouth a little bit more. And me shutting my mouth a little bit more. Practice speaking less and listening more with everyone, including in prayer. And then the fourth one hopefully will be a fun one for you. Actually go on a walk. Without headphones in, look up to the heavens. My help comes from you, maker of heavens, creator of the earth. Open your eyes. See the goodness, the glory, the beauty of our God.